Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Today marks the launch of the ninth year of these forums, in which, six or seven times a year, we invite a voice of conscience from one discipline or another, from one corner of the land or another, to address a key issue facing our society, and that from an ethical perspective. These forums are free and open to the public on the given day. They are to be heard on national and American public radio and are to be seen through the Minneapolis television network. I, Donald Meisel, a minister here at Westminster, have the uh, habit of moderating these forums and it is a delight. Our speaker today is Jill Conway, whose presence with us is being co-sponsored by the American Association of University Women, the Minneapolis branch. Ms. Conway's distinguished career as a scholar, author, and professor has equipped her with special expertise in the areas of history, education, and women's studies, among others. Ms. Conway is a native of New South Wales, Australia. We'll detect that in her voice. She did her undergraduate work at the University of Sydney. She received her PhD degree from Harvard in 1969. For the 10-year period, 1975 to 85, she served as president of Smith College. Before that, 64 to 75, she was at the University of Toronto in an ascending order of responsibilities. Currently, she is a visiting scholar at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Our guest is the recipient of no less than 15 honorary degrees. A list of just some of her current professional activities include directorships in IBM, Nike Incorporated, the Allen Group, Colgate Palmolive Company, Arthur D. Little Incorporated, Merrill Lynch Comp and Company, and others. Publications from her hand include um, many, among them, The First Generation of American Women Graduates, Women's Place, Are Women's Colleges Necessary Today, Politics, Pedagogy, and Gender. Just one quote from Politics, Pedagogy, and Gender serves to suggest the kind of probing we can expect from today's lecturer. She wrote, How would Huckleberry Finn read if the journey on the raft were an escape from male institutions? Huckleberry Finn's journey raises many profound questions about American culture. One critical question is whether the over-presentation of one gender in the early stages of schooling permits either boys or girls to develop the balanced identities we associate with creativity. We'll get back to that one when she's handling the question period. Ms. Conway's theme today is Affirming American Ideals in the 21st Century. Dr. Conway, we welcome you to this podium today. Thank you for that wonderful introduction and for that warm reception. The centenary of the Minneapolis branch of the American Association of University Women prompted me to reflect today in preparing my remarks on the educational values and ideals expressed in American history and to pose for you a few of the ethical problems and issues I believe we should face today as we try to reaffirm those early shaping values of this society uh, in the coming century. Now I'm starting out by reading to you four statements which reflect the consensus of American society in the founding years of the Republic about the values to be expressed in education, both public and private. They're probably all ones you've heard, but I'd like you to listen hard and then see how they relate to the issues which face us today. First, here's Benjamin Franklin talking about the importance of establishing subscription libraries 
so that the general populace can have access to books. These libraries, Franklin founded one for his own group of mechanics and artisans in Philadelphia, these libraries have improved the general conversation of Americans, made the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent as most gentlemen from other countries, and perhaps have contributed in some degree to the stand so generally made throughout the colonies in defense of their privileges. And Franklin wrote that in 1771. Second, here's Thomas Jefferson speaking in 1786 about his plan to establish a publicly funded system of secondary and university education in Virginia. He's writing from Paris, where he's representing the new republic uh, at the French court, and he's writing the year or so before the outbreak of the French Revolution. He's writing to a friend in Virginia, and he says, I think by far the most important bill in our whole code is that for the diffusion of knowledge among the people. No other sure foundation can be devised for the preservation of freedom and happiness. And then Jefferson goes on in his letter to contrast the freedom of the United States with the current situation in France where he says a, uh, an aristocracy which is irresponsible, a church which is overtaxing the population, and a court which is taxing people heavily uh, to build a, a great empire abroad are preying on an ignorant populace. Let our countrymen know, Jefferson says, that the people alone can protect us against these evils of ignorance and uncertainty, and that the tax which will be paid for this purpose, that is public education, is not more than a thousandth part of what will be paid for kings, priests, and nobles who will rise up among us if we leave the people in ignorance. And in a, a year in which we're hearing everybody promise uh, not to raise taxes, I think we should remember Thomas Jefferson's notion of what our responsibilities are for public education and what the consequences of stinting on investment in our young people can be. Third, here's Alexis de Tocqueville describing American society and education in the 1830s. He's a visiting French aristocrat, fascinated by American society, trying to understand what the contours of a, a democracy would be and comparing it to Europe. And he's describing traveling in the wilderness, uh, arriving uh, on the frontier, uh, seeing a frontiersman's hut. He's actually, uh, at the time he's writing this, traveling uh, uh, just about uh, 60 or 70 miles outside what would become uh, the great city of Chicago. As soon as the pioneer reaches the place which is to serve him for a retreat, he fells a few trees and builds a log house. The traveler who approaches one of them toward nightfall sees the flicker of the hearth flame through the chinks in the walls. Who would not suppose, says Tocqueville, this poor hut is the asylum of rudeness and ignorance? Yet no sort of comparison can be drawn between the pioneer and the dwelling that shelters him. He wears the dress and speaks the language of cities. He is acquainted with the past, curious about the future, and ready for argument about the present. It is difficult to imagine the incredible rapidity with which thought circulates in the midst of these deserts. I do not think so much intellectual activity exists in the most enlightened and populous districts of France. And he's writing about France in the heyday of the Enlightenment, at the peak of its culture. Finally, here's the Brookline School Committee inspired by Horace Mann, the founder of public education in Massachusetts, talking about the importance of public secondary education in the Commonwealth, where, in 1855, when this was written, the Industrial Revolution was changing the nature of work and requiring new skills for the workforce. Whole classes, the school board writes, whole classes in our community who, not a generation ago, would have been content to earn their living by unskilled labor are now thrust from that lower market and are forced to add knowledge and intelligence to the labor of their hands. We should not regret this state of things, they write, but provide for it and welcome it. That's an important message to remember for today when another great technological transformation is changing the character of work. Now I'll come back to that uh, in a few minutes. 
Now, my 80-year survey of the values which informed the early American educational philosophy emphasizes that the Founding Fathers and their successors in the Young Republic believed and acted upon two important educational principles, and they were, first, respect for the intellectual ability of unlettered people, people who the common herd would define as ignorant, and second, recognition of the link between widely diffused education and economic prosperity. They thought and believed and acted upon the belief that it was possible to add knowledge and intelligence to the working man and working woman's hand and increase the productivity of the labor force. Of course, they thought it only about male laborers, but what they had to say uh, can be applied to women too. Now, because women's domestic work was unpaid and seen as outside the productive system, the pioneers of women's education didn't make the same linkage between education and economic productivity, but they did equate women's education with growth in national moral and social well-being. And here, just one more quotation for you, are some of the words of the guiding genius of the founder of Smith College, founded in 1875. I quote it because it's the place I know best. We think, he says, and he's writing to some of his fellow trustees, we think the enterprise is the most important educational movement of the age. It is to organize for the better education of more than half the race. It is to restore to woman her lost rights. That is to say, the right to equal knowledge with man and all the influence that comes with it. We, through founding Smith, can show the world what woman is capable of, what she can do for the church, the family, the state, the world. Those words written in 1873. Notice here, women's higher education was not to enhance productivity, but rather to enhance her influence to work for the church, the family, and the state. Her work became, as we all know, initially teaching in the public schools and teaching there for a pittance, a wage just about the same as that of an unskilled male laborer and a wage that was thought of as providing only a subsistence, not a dignified living, because women were thought always to be under the protection of men. Now, I think it's true, nonetheless, that we can see from the history of, of the activities of educated women in this country that the expectations of the founders of a place like Smith or any of the other women's colleges or those who who fought for the admission of women to state institutions, it's true that their expectations were realized. If you look at the history of the Minneapolis branch of the American Association of University Women, what did it work for? It worked to improve the schools, to make scholarships available for economically needy women, to foster social responsibility through establishing a consumer's league, to monitor the conditions under which consumer articles were produced, it worked to secure representation of women on the regents of the University of Minnesota, to foster international understanding when that was rather unfashionable through scholarly exchanges and fellowships, to improve facilities for the elderly, to promote more informed voting and political participation by its members. Now, these are all just the kinds of activities that were valued as voluntary activities by women. But when they entered the paid workforce, and particularly in their role as, as teachers and later uh, in some of the other great service professions of this country, uh, they were thought of as needing uh, relatively modest support and the occupations which they entered therefore had a lower status and importance in the society. Now, one of your great founding members in the Minneapolis uh, branch, uh, a, a great figure in women's education in this country, Ada Comstock Notstein, left the University of Minnesota to become uh, Dean of Smith College, to plan the first curriculum that was to set the most rigorous educational standards for women. And she went on from being Dean of Smith to being the first president of Radcliffe College and to establish one of the first great graduate schools for women. 
If you look at her papers and her diaries, you'll find that neither she nor her colleagues in the early leadership of women's education and the American Association of University Women could criticize or challenge the division of labor between educated men and educated women I've just described. The investment in education for men was thought of as yielding economic productivity, for women, social service. But deeply embedded in American culture was the belief that women's education shouldn't lead them uh, to enter the workplace and challenge men on equal terms. It should motivate them to lives of volunteerism and service. And somebody like Ada Comstock privately regretted this, but felt that she could not gain public support for her institutions by challenging those values and beliefs. Now, out of this division of labor, of course, grew the extraordinary history of women's volunteerism and the nonprofit cultural and welfare sector of this economy, a sector that is unique in size and importance compared with any other modern industrialized society. I think Americans sometimes don't understand that it doesn't exist in Western Europe. It exists only very modestly uh, in other democracies like Canada and Australia. It's a unique characteristic of this society, and it's a product of those cultural values. Of course, in the women's movement of the 1960s and 70s, the criticism that founders of women's education could not articulate was finally stated loudly and clearly. And it was articulated by uh, representatives of women's education, women in the labor force, uh, women uh, literary critics, um, women active in political life. And part of that criticism produced much of the legislation that guarantees equal employment opportunity to women and uh, tries to secure for them equal returns on their labor. Uh, although, as you probably know, women in this society uh, earn roughly 64 cents to the dollar earned by males of comparable uh, levels of education and training. Uh, women in West Germany or Italy earn about 88 cents. We are far behind Western Europe uh, in this particular area. Now, we all thought in the 1960s and 70s that this great movement to secure economic equality and educational opportunity for women uh, had been strikingly successful. But of course, the strong right-wing political reaction, which that challenge has provoked, has really reshaped uh, the patterns of American political life. And we are seeing those issues fought over very uh, strongly and definitively, I think, in, in this uh, current presidential campaign. Now, I think we have to concede that while organizations like the AAUW have been a very important component of the voluntary sector, working for an informed constituency, constantly concerned with the quality of public education, I think we have to concede that they have been increasingly unable to stimulate support for that goal. They have had to work against a set of attitudes which are rarely discussed, but have undermined the noble commitment to quality in education for all segments of the population, which was so widely shared during the first half century or so of the founding of this republic. And those quotations I read to you are a summary of what those values were. Now, what forces produced uh, attitudes opposed to that commitment to public education? Well, let me explain what I think some of them were, and maybe we can argue about it in the question period. First of all, during the uh, 60 or 70 years when the public educational system was being developed in this country, women were 90% of the elementary teachers and from 60 to 80% of the secondary school teachers, but they didn't vote until 1919. They didn't vote for the school boards that organized the schools that they taught in. And if you look at what the consequences of that inability to participate in the political system which regulated the schools was, you see that urban political machines could make school politics 
more concerned with awarding plum building contracts and allocating tax rebates than with the intellectual issues of concern to teachers or with the dignity of the teaching profession itself. I think also, with all due respect to men, that the fact that they became 98% of the school superintendents and continue to be so to this day meant that however well-intentioned, superintendents often administered a body of teachers who they didn't really have a fundamental respect for. And they could genuinely see teachers as not having a long-term commitment to the teaching profession because society used to require that when a woman married, she left teaching. Indeed, right up until the 1930s, we had state legislation forbidding a married woman to teach in the schools. So even today, uh, there is a very high rate of turnover among teachers in the school system, although uh, we all know, and each of us can cite stories, of the wonderful figures who have lived a lifetime in our schools and contributed very, very significantly to them. Now, thinking of teachers as people who lack a lifetime career and lack a lifetime investment in a career has been used over and over again historically to justify paying them only modestly more than unskilled laborers. So that by the turn of the century, teachers, unions, were battling for security and pay increases and their economic situation really dictated the agenda for which they battled. And women who couldn't vote hadn't much option except to unionize to get any pressure to bring to bear on uh, the political forces regulating the schools. They couldn't really move the agenda on to educational quality until those economic issues were resolved, and they really never have been, and I think we have to admit that today. Now, in the process then of its development, because of the assumptions which the society at large held about the characteristics of the people who taught, and they were gender assumptions, it became possible to develop the system of universal public education, forgetting the noble aspirations of the 18th and early 19th century. And those aspirations were more easily weakened because the population moving into the schools in major urban areas by around 1900 was no longer Native American, native-born American. They were immigrants. So it became easier to think of vocational education and a limited aspiration for the achievement of the public system. And most people forgot about that wonderful 19th century aspiration to add intellect, knowledge, and intelligence to the hand of labor, a wonderful ideal. And of course, as the American industrial system initially developed, labor didn't need too much of that intelligence because the production lines were organized so that individual workers contributed only strictly standardized actions. And it, they were organized that way because many people couldn't communicate with one another. The workforce was an immigrant workforce. People spoke many different languages. And so the actions along a production line had to be standardized. Now, most students of American education made a change in the patterns of recruitment into the teaching profession from about 1910 the period when other professions for women became more available and other better paid ones. Certainly from about 1910, we can date the marked decline in rank in class and educational attainment of people who stayed in teaching as a career. Many people of high aspiration were motivated to enter the profession, but to stay was another matter. Certainly from about that date also, there was a real decline in the leadership of the profession nationally in articulating educational issues. And a recent study by Ernest Boyer, president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, has published some striking data on the trend. 50 years ago, surveys showed that the test scores of students in education majors were lower than those of most other majors within the higher educational system. 
20 years ago, when those scores were being analyzed for uh, the assessment of, of people's capacity in the selective service qualification test, education majors as a group scored lowest. In the 1980s, those entering education programs come from the lower half of their college class. Now a slow start, because people develop at different paces, might be compensated for by years on the job. But the conditions of teaching, which are reported universally, poor pay, demeaning supervision, danger in the classroom, mean that 40% of teachers leave the profession after five years, and 37% nationally report being in physical fear at some time or another during their teaching career. Now, most have to hold two jobs to make ends meet because their pay is so low relative to other occupations. And usually, about the time a teacher has a family and begins to look into buying a house, the conclusion is reached that some better paid job must be found. And I think the words of one teacher who was interviewed by the Carnegie Foundation team are very, very poignant. If a lot of us are disenchanted with the teaching profession, it's because we can't live on what we take home. I mean, how can you like what you're doing when it's not taking care of you? Now, these are deplorable facts, and they tell me that to affirm American values in the future, we need to raise the status of teaching, the pay of teachers, and to return to valuing the intelligence of ordinary people, because if we really valued the ordinary people and their sons and daughters who are in the public schools, we would value very highly the people who teach them. And we would think they warranted our best investment in their work. Now, I think that we should be doing this and committing ourselves as citizens to work for it for ethical reasons and in order to adhere to our best traditions. But I think there's self-interest involved as well. First of all, we've never been at a time in our history when the need for adding intelligence and knowledge to labor has been more pressing. The new kind of technology that is coming to us from the computer age and the age of automation is one where our working force must be highly educated. The new process engineering and the new technology which is shaping it requires people to operate production lines in small runs, to retool, reprogram, and they require uh, a worker to know exactly what the process is, to be able to invest in quality, stop the line if something is going wrong. One of the reasons why we have trouble competing with the Japanese is that any Japanese worker can stop any production line because he or she is thought of as having an impersonal investment in the quality of what is produced. We are having a lot of trouble uh, beginning to think about our workforce that way, but they will not be able to do it if they are not highly educated, not just minimally. Secondly, we live in a changing world economic system where the relative advantage is no longer closeness to natural resources, but closeness to cheap labor. So our standard of life must from now on in great part be supported by selling intellectual services, what comes out of the heads of our population. What are those services? Well, computer software, medical technology, education. We're lucky that our higher educational system, uh, Secretary Bennett to the contrary, our higher educational system is better than any other in any industrialized society and much admired. But more than ever, we need to add knowledge and intelligence to the hand of labor. And if we are not able to do so, we will face very serious problems as a society. Let me say about a word about women's place in that future. Women's place in that society will only be secured on a level of equality with men to the degree that we are able to succeed in our schools in getting girls to become involved in mathematics, science, and computing. I don't know how many of you know the statistics, but in all our public school systems around the country, a boy is eight times more likely than a girl to in, be involved in, in computer classes 
and to work in free time uh, using the computer resources. Why? It's because we're still giving girls the message that they shouldn't be interested in this kind of technology. And if we don't give them the education that will enable them really to contribute to this new society that our technology is creating, we will be building a whole new basis for their inequality. It is language, logic, and mathematics that will make it possible for people to be in charge of this new technology instead of simply its low-skilled servants. So I hope that the Minneapolis branch of the AAUW and all you citizens who care about educational equality for women will go out and visit your school district and find out what's happening in the computer classrooms and insist that there be special classes to try to correct this gap. But most important, we must return in our public policy to the goal of the best possible education for all. Some of the things we've been hearing from Washington and some of the criticisms that have been made of our, our current educational system I think have been quite devious. There's been an argument that our schools are declining in the level of excellence that they achieve because they're really trying to uh, create silk purses out of sow's ears, that it's foolish of us to have a high aspiration for the total population educationally. We should concentrate on excellence, invest in the most readily talented segment of the population that shows that talent in elementary and secondary school, and lower our aspirations for everybody else. Forget about the inner city schools and realize that literacy is about all you can hope for from there. I think that that is totally fallacious. I think that we have failed miserably in our ability to teach students from uh, different ethnic groups, different kinds of social and economic experience, and that we probably have to learn from the best educational experiments in the developing world about how it is that you make learning real to a person who comes from a totally different background from the one that is represented in the textbooks and in, in the curriculum that has really been developed for a, a white American population. Uh, certainly, all the schools that I know of which have made a really strong commitment in the inner city to staying with children, seeing what happens to them in the afternoon, finding out whether they really have a meal to go home to, have not had quite the pattern of dropouts that are accepted nationally. Uh, I'm part of an experiment uh, in the Boston area uh, where a group of volunteers plus some pa paid professionals are working uh, in the inner city schools with the highest dropout rates to see what happens to the children after school. Stay with them through the day. Find out whether they come hungry to school and haven't had any breakfast. Uh, and it's astonishing. About 60% of the kids in the school I know haven't had breakfast. So it's no wonder they can't concentrate. And it's no wonder that uh, we are seen as, as uh, unfeeling in our management of their lives. How could we return to that goal of the best possible education for all and rediscover the respect for the intellect of the unlettered, which comes through so clearly in those quotations from Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and all the founders of, of education in this society. We have to think very hard about it, especially important when we consider that in many urban school systems, the majority of students are from minorities and that because of the higher fertility of black and Hispanic populations, the number of states with a majority of minority students in elementary school, 16 I believe in 1980, will be probably 20 by the end of the decade. Now if we're to be true to the best American educational aspirations, we must respect and develop those intellects, starting first by providing dignified wages for teachers and good teachers to teach 
with a lifelong opportunity for professional advancement in the schools. But going beyond that, we have to find the school structures and the curricula that will release that intellect of those young children and allow that human potential to enrich this society. And if we fail to do that, we are really acquiescing in another definition of our history and our heritage from the past. And we've heard a lot recently in the presidential campaign about preserving American values. I hope we can do it. Thank you. Dr. Conway, thank you for bringing intelligence and knowledge and a high degree of passion to your labor with us today. Well done. Let me say to our radio audience and our television audience, and during the time that those of you who must leave may do so, that our speaker that at the Westminster Town Hall Forum today, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis has been, is Dr. Jill Conway, who has been affirming American ideals in the 21st century. She is a scholar, author, professor in the fields of history, education, women's studies, among others. The co-sponsor for her appearance today, the American Association of University Women, the Minneapolis branch, and that in connection with celebrating their centennial. Questions may come not only from the floor today, but also from the radio audience. And if anyone out there wishes to send in a question, use the following Westminster phone number, 332-3421, 332-3421. Dr. Conway, would you be willing to return to the podium and let's have that good time that we associate with questions and answers. While we're waiting for them to come forward, the questions that is, would you be willing to, to comment on that quote that I gave in the introduction about how would Huckleberry Finn read if the journey on the raft were an escape from male institutions? That might yes, be Yes, indeed. Uh, the uh, quotation comes from an essay I wrote about the impact on American society of the fact that the great majority of the teachers in its public schools throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century are women. Now schools in other industrialized societies, societies let's say France, West Germany, uh, Great Britain, uh, the predominance in certainly at the secondary level is for male teachers and uh, it is certainly true that they have on the whole operated in a more elitist way uh, trying to make a schoolroom much more a place of discipline from a received culture which is transmitted to students than a place which is an extension of the home and embodied maternal values. And uh, I believe as a historian that some of the protests against women that you read in a sort of adolescent form, uh, let me cite uh, Norman Mailer for instance, some of that protest comes out of the fact that women are seen in the formative years of young men and young women as the custodians of, of culture and cultural values and that it's, it's difficult to um, get away from that configuration and I think Huckleberry Finn and Huck's attitudes to the widow are really a, a classic expression. I mean, she's going to impose authority on him and he's on the lamb against it. And uh, one finds that happening as a recurring pattern in American literature. Thank you for responding to that. I was intrigued. What single highest educational priority would you endorse for the next administration? Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the single highest educational priority I would have for the new administration would be to make it possible for women on welfare to accept financial aid to go to college and to do that without losing the
the medical benefits that come to them with welfare for their families. It's, it's tragic that a woman who can only get herself off welfare by education has to choose between the health of her children and the well-being of her family to get that education. It's a terrible anomaly in the welfare system. And I can tell you from experiments that we have conducted at Smith for uh, almost a decade now, that when those women get their education, their taxes will pay society back very fast for that modest investment. A number of questions, and we're getting a flood of them, and good ones, uh, center around the whole matter of women's colleges. This one, for instance. Do women's colleges foster the pursuit of the sciences and mathematics among women to a greater degree than do coeducational co institutions? If so, what do you think of the current trend of women's and men's colleges to become coeducational? Is that a first assumption true? Do women's colleges foster the pursuit of sciences, mathematics? Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. um, the record of uh, women's colleges uh, in producing uh, women who hold a doctorate in science and mathematics and who continue with careers in mathematics is uh, statistically much, much higher than that for graduates of coeducational institutions. Why is that? Um, it's an interesting question. I think the performance of women from women's colleges is quite similar to that for men from small liberal arts colleges. If you study who has actually gone on to do advanced work in science and mathematics in this country, both male and female, the men are predominantly graduates of liberal arts colleges. And I think that is because they are taught by working scientists who have a uh, master-apprentice relationship with them. Whereas in most major university settings, you tend to be taught by teaching fellows who are uh, rushing along with their career and don't have quite the same mentoring capacity. So the reason may have more to do with the mentoring which is available. But research has also shown that in math and science classes in coeducational liberal arts colleges, um, male faculty, and they are the predominant number, uh, bond more freely with male students in that master-apprentice relationship than they do with women, whereas where the student body is all female, that master-apprentice relationship develops very freely. What do you see as the future of women's colleges? Does single gender education have a place in our educational system? Oh, thank you for asking that one. <laughs> Does single gender education have a place? Yes, indeed. I'd like to remind you that uh, women's colleges are really the only ones in this country with co-educational faculties. Most of them have roughly 50-50 males and females on their faculty and in their governance. Most coeducational institutions have a great predominance of male faculty, a relatively modest number of women faculty in, in tenured positions, large numbers of women in subordinate positions. Um, the future of women's colleges, I believe, is to provide top quality education to the young woman who knows by the time she is finishing high school she wants to go to a place where she's taken seriously and where she's in charge. Once you've had the experience of this alternative society run by women, you never really settle down again. And that's a wonderful thing. Lots of young women finish in, in their high school years very strongly need the affirmation of a, uh, an, a, an approving male population, and those people are not happy in women's colleges. And they probably should make the choice for co-education. It's partly because women in an all-female student body pay no heed to gender stereotypes in choosing their area of study. Smith has graduated more women in physics and geology than Yale or Harvard for years. And so do all the other women's colleges, just to give you some examples. Um, it's partly because women are really inspired to compete 
in a peer situation that releases all of their strongest competitive energies. And our society is always taught that women uh, should be a little nervous about competing with men. Uh, it might uh, damage your emotional life. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons, subtle messages we get not to do it. And then there is the problem that still in this society, especially in highly abstract subjects, men tend to hear only other men speaking. So women, while they may participate in classes, don't really live in the same classroom. So for that kind of person who knows what she wants, that's the place to go. Perhaps this question fits in very nicely. Isn't one hindrance to women receiving leadership jobs their own lack of self-confidence and self-esteem? <laughs> well, I think that uh, there are a very complex set of barriers for women to surmount in reaching top jobs. Let us look, for instance, at management in a major international corporation. The predominant management style of our corporations is very much one in which um, the stress is on strategic thinking and, and the ability to articulate very aggressively what the goals of the enterprise may be. Men still are quite uncomfortable with women doing that. And they're also quite uncomfortable in situations of crisis uh, in, in being exposed as vulnerable to uh, female observers. So I think there are some cultural components that make that difficult. In political life, it's still very hard for women to raise the money to compete on equal terms against men. And money is the big criterion now in terms of a, a successful race. Uh, in academic life, um, there is still a good old boy network that gets the plum jobs for males. Uh, all affirmative action and, and everything else to the contrary. Uh, I know this through having uh, investigated appointment policies in, in many academic settings, especially where there's a system of peer review of applicants. Um, it's very easy to structure the peer review so that a uh, woman candidate doesn't come out so well. And then fourthly, I think that we have to rethink very carefully uh, what this society values. If it values women contributing their talents to top leadership positions, which are 24-hour-a-day jobs, seven days a week, it has to make the commitment to daycare and the support of, of women's nurturance of their families that so far it's not been willing to make. Now I think those are bigger barriers than lack of confidence. I know lots of confident women, but it is very, very hard for them in those respective areas to surmount some of those cultural factors. Lead, you just led into this question. What do you think is the influence of daycare on education of children? Should we increase daycare to include, include uh, younger children in the school system? Yes, I believe that we should. First of all, we will never solve the problems of our teenage population in the schools who have young children until we do that. Secondly, I believe if we were willing to make an investment as a society in top flight daycare, uh, we would be amply rewarded. Uh, most of the studies of children who have been in daycare since early infancy uh, show them uh, developmentally advantaged in social interaction uh, and in no way developmentally disadvantaged. I'd have to remind you that American society is, as far as I know it, the only one which abandoned uh, assistance for mothers in caring for their children uh, as early as 1890. Uh, the child study movement of the 1890s uh, was one in which, uh, mistakenly, the early s uh, studies of psychologists at Clark University uh, tried to convince society that, that children were damaged if they were not cared for by their own mothers. I have to say, since the dawn of the human race, uh, many, many surrogate caregivers have cared for infants, and uh, every society seems to find a way of providing assistance for its elites. Uh, to care for their families. 
If we want to be uh, providing those opportunities more broadly, we'll have to look for some sort of surrogate care. And I don't think that would be bad. I'm talking as somebody uh, raised by a nanny and sent away to boarding school when I was 10. Uh, didn't do me any harm. I judge not. <laughs> this is from the radio audience. I do not hear you honoring and affirming what women have traditionally valued. As you endorse language, logic, and math for girls, what about also bringing uh, re renewed value to the study of humanities, psychology, theology, and social services? Well, thank you for that question. I didn't mean to slight those fields. They are fields in which women already are enormously high achievers. And I don't see any need for remedial action there. Uh, we are all, all of us uh, part of a culture which encourages women to excel in those areas, and I hope we would never stop doing so. But uh, I think that it is true to say that some remediation is necessary in the fields of mathematics and science. Yesterday, William F. Buckley, speaking here in the Twin Cities, confessed his, I wondered if this was going to come, <laughs> <laughs> confessed his dirty little secret that he thought voting privileges should be limited to an educated few. Could you comment on that statement and your general attitude toward Buckley? <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful question. Uh, first of all, uh, I do not believe that voting privileges should be limited to an educated few. Uh, I have deep respect for the intelligence and good sense of ordinary people everywhere. Uh, as a child growing up in the outback of Australia, I, I herded sheep and cattle with people who couldn't read and write, but they were very sensible and wise people, and I trust their judgment. Uh, I think there are many reasons uh, why um, people might want to confine voting to an educated elite, and I'm suspicious of most of them. Uh, I, as, so far as my attitude uh, to Mr. Buckley is concerned, uh, I admire his vocabulary and uh, <laughs> detest his political opinions. Thank you. Here's a nice one. If you so strongly support women's colleges, why are you now at MIT? <laughs> <laughs> why am I now at MIT? Uh, I am at MIT because uh, I am a humanist interested in understanding the emerging contours of a society which will be driven by high technology. And unless humanists can understand that world and interpret its language and in in many ways articulate their values within it, uh, we're not really meeting our responsibilities. I also happen to believe uh, that in uh, many high technology environments, important humanistic issues are raised in very dramatic and, and powerful forms in ways they're not uh, in strictly academic humanities environment. And uh, I'm a little disillusioned with this, the degree of specialization within the academic humanities today and interested to get in an environment where people ask big questions. And that's certainly something they do at MIT. As far as uh, women's colleges go, um, I think that there are two major responsibilities for women academics. Uh, one is to preserve and sustain and develop the resources that support undergraduate achievement by women. The other is to try to understand what have been the barriers that have prevented women entering many technologically based occupations and to work on study and understanding of, of why that occurs. And I've had my 10 years on the first problem and I'm working on the second one now. Thank you. Another question from the radio audience. Do you see women in their 40s and 50s expanding their careers and education and making a contribution to society? Yes, indeed I do. I think one of the great benefits that came to us from uh, 
the upheavals of the women's movement in the 60s and 70s was the freeing of older women to seek new opportunities, uh, define themselves all over again. I think one of the real discoveries that we have, have made in uh, studying adult development in the last two decades has been uh, the extraordinary access of energy that women get in their late 40s and 50s when some of the family responsibilities are diminished and when they, they can really proceed on a new definition of themselves. It's one of the most exciting things to see educationally. And I'm glad that so many academic institutions have responded with programs that make it possible to go back into full-time study uh, at, at that age. Here's a personal question. What personal values, motivations, have led you to choose the professional life you have led? Oh, what an interesting question. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, the, I'm the child of a um, highly talented woman who, uh, because of the conventions of Australian life, uh, never got to college, uh, had a passion for learning, which she communicated to me. Um, I think I probably would have chosen a business career, except that nobody would employ me after I graduated from the University of Sydney because I was a woman. Uh, I was forced, therefore, to choose uh, a study abroad. Uh, and in the process of study for my doctorate at Harvard, found that I had a, a great love for the academic life of teaching and research. Um, so my career has really been uh, built by two things, I guess, love of learning and the determination to see that for future generations we would not see highly talented women of any background not able to realize that potential. What you've just said uh, intrigues me the more to read this autobiography <laughs> that you say you've been writing in the past months and which will be coming out next spring. Wonderful. Just, just a, a simple question to close on. What changes do you foresee for women by the year 2000, and what do you hope for? <laughs> <laughs> what changes do I see? Well, I think there are a series of changes that we must be very concerned about in the area of medical and reproductive technology. Um, I think that we don't understand today uh, what social and ethical and spiritual problems are ahead for us in terms of our ability to manage the technology of life. We are very close to artificial wombs. Uh, the whole battle about surrogate motherhood is going to be irrelevant very soon. Um, that's an issue that women have to be very concerned about. Men too. Uh, that goes to some of the most fundamental aspects of our human identity. And I think we have our heads in the sand if we don't think about that. Um, secondly, I think women will have to, be obliged to, whether they like it or not, uh, to become more interested in the nature of high technology. It's not affecting our households yet very much, but it is affecting the workplace very, very uh, considerably. And if we want to exercise choice and make realistic decisions, we'll have to be educated in those areas. So I think that's a problem on the horizon. I'm looking forward to the time, though, when we will have uh, developed the patterns of exercise and nutrition that will help us control osteoporosis and keep us all uh, tearing around into our 90s. Um, and I think that that's probably quite likely to occur before the year 2000. Um, I think the other thing that will be an important and equally troublesome issue for us all is the whole question of the responsibility that our society is willing to take to support individual families dealing with aging. We are going to live longer. I hope we'll be healthier, but I know exactly who it is who takes care of the aging parents today and who needs an enormous amount of su support and backup 
to do it in, in a way that isn't personally just devastating. So I, I think we'll have to be much more concerned as citizens with the problems of the elderly. And I think women will probably have that consciousness first. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jill Conway, thank you for knowing and caring and sharing so much. <laughs>